Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Massidi. Here on Miranda Warnings this week, we're joined by Rachel Silberstein, the Capitol Bureau reporter for the Times Union, and also Susan Harper, managing director of the Bates Group, and chair of the Women in Law section for the New York State Bar Association. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. And welcome, Susan. Thank you for having me today. We're going to talk today about uh, hist- uh, an historic hearing that took place recently on sexual harassment in the New York State Legislature. Uh, it's the first hearing on this issue that took place in almost 30 years. Uh, the last time we had a full hearing like this, it was following the Anita Hill hearings in 1992. So, uh, Rachel, you wrote extensively on behalf of the Times Union about this hearing. Uh, tell us a little bit about why this hearing was so historic and important. So the 1992 hearing, that was a it was a comprised of a task force that was called by uh, Governor at the time, uh, Mario Cuomo. Um, but this was remarkable in that it was spurred by seven former legislative aides who formed a sexual harassment working group last uh, winter when the budget was being negotiated. And it was clear that lawmakers and the governor were going to pass a sex- some sexual harassment protections in the budget, and they were calling for transparency. They wanted an open process, especially because these aides had complained about sexual harassment and say that they were pressured into signing non-disclosures agreement and were, um, you know, their complaints were mishandled. So it was really interesting that it was spurred by these women, and it was a really remarkable moment because... Um, these women and uh, actually a gentleman who drove up from Buffalo who um, had complained about uh, harassment by an assemblywoman um, re- got to confront these lawmakers and talk talk in the open about these scandals. And for so long, it was swept under the rug. And it was just there was sort of this culture of silence. Um, and it, it really a lot of lawmakers uh sat there and and recalled how these uh, scandals played out and had to listen finally to the victims. So we had um, eight former staffers in the legislature that were themselves victims of sexual harassment, seven women, uh, one one male who testified. We had other testimony as well. Susan Harper, who's the chair of our Women in Law section. Uh, Susan, you testified as well, and you talked a little bit, a little bit about some of the laws and some of the discrepancies that there were uh, in in the laws and how uh, some of the changes uh, that are necessary. But what were you hearing from the women and the and the the man that testified about? the kind of culture uh, of the legislature and New York state government that um, needed to be addressed? Sure. Um, It was really, it was truly extraordinary. It was extraordinary, first of all, to just watch um, individuals who are former employees um, just um, address their former employers. So just kind of just think about that for a moment. Um, I think that um, they were really concerned because the fact that um, that in the past that uh, that the legislature was indifferent to them and it was indifferent to um, their own um, complaints. Some of the issues that they brought up um, 
they talked about a lack of an independent process um, in the investigation process or the process not being transparent um, of everybody not being fully aware of what was happening or being reported back to when there was any sort of investigation process. Um, bad actors um, using press as a weapon, the role of uh, leaks to the press, um, and the feeling re-victimization um, because of the fact that if after they had made any complaint um, and had gone to the press um, because of the way that our world works, you know, we're not necessarily, when something comes out in the newspaper, it's not necessarily yesterday's news anymore. It now lives on forever. Um, and so having that um, on the internet um, made it difficult for them to even move on with their life. Um, they talked about the issues of the role of non-disclosures and liquidated damages and how they felt that they couldn't even speak with their family members um, and how this drove many of the victims into further depression um, and the need to take safe and preemptive steps in early intervention when someone first complains about sexual harassment. Um, they also discussed the need for change in the, um, in the legislature, uh, including climate sur uh, surveys, changes in the law, uh, including the New York State Constitution, um, and um, as well as uh, changes uh, to what, how, it, how a person who works as a staffer um, should be defined. I, I was actually, Dave, I was really surprised to learn um, from just watching this that um, that uh, to, that uh, employees are have been defined, I guess, as profess as personal staff rather than as um, employees as protected under um, under the law. And because of this, um, a lot of individuals um, who did make complaints um, had a lot of trouble bringing forth um, actions. Well, well, we can talk a little bit about uh, – I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the laws that uh, are being proposed to help address this. But before we get to that, I think it's important that we talk a little bit about the culture because the, the common thread in the testimony was that when this happened and they raised the issue, it became counterproductive really in, in for them to raise it and that there was a culture in place that they were uh, actually uh, – not encouraged to raise this issue. And so there were all these hurdles in place that would either make it more difficult for them to uh, seek to address these issues, or in fact, they would be personally harmed either through leaks to the media, et cetera, about their reputation. Rachel, what's your what's your feeling about the, the way the culture was presented uh, with respect to these individuals? I thought it was really stark seeing um, at the hearing just – there were a lot of young lawmakers who were kind of driving the conversation, a lot of freshmen who weren't around, but also a lot of veteran lawmakers, some of whom were involved in devising the Assembly's ethics um, policy um, and sexual harassment policy. And it was really interesting to hear their description compared to, you know, the culture now. Um, we heard lawmakers talking about intersectionality and talking about creating uh, mindful spaces. Um, they were scolding Jacob, which is the body that is tasked with um, investigating these type of claims in the, in the legislature, um, and but ha kind of has a history of, of being really opaque, and it, you know, I think only three of the investigations were ever resolved. Um, so there's a lot of criticisms that were aired about that. Um, but one thing that was particularly stark in the te testimony was 
um, just the culture of silence, especially, um, you know, Elizabeth Crothers, who complained of accused Michael Boxley, the counsel to Assembly Speaker Shelley Silver, of raping her. Um, she said no one would talk to her. Um, there was a the, the former legislative leaders just had a much different, more top down approach to governing than the current legislative leaders. Um, and I think the Democrats retaking the Senate really was like a turning point, which enabled this like public airing to happen. Um, and it, would, it couldn't have happened any under any previous leadership. Is there uh, is there a feeling that there's this kind of protect the institution um, culture when someone brings one of these complaints uh, forward that uh, perhaps there was some wrongdoing and perhaps people are empathetic about it, but they have this kind of bigger picture of, well, we don't want this out. We don't want, we don't want the transparency because this is going to reflect poorly on all legislators. Kind of, kind of like the thing we're seeing with the, that the church is undergoing where for years there was, there were these problems uh, that were very serious and they were addressed kind of quietly because they wanted to protect the institution. It seems to me like there is this kind of institutional protection rather than individual protection in the legislature, which now we're seeing change. Exactly. And I think these women sort of highlighted the effects of that. Um, I think it's natural to be on, you know, for people to react that way. It's sort of instinctive to want to, like, protect the institution. Um, but I Yes, Susan. Yeah, sure. I was going to just jump in there and say that I, I also had a sense that there was real fear and there was fear of certain individuals, I guess, who were actually um, conducting themselves in, in these inappropriate ways. And because of that, I don't think that it was necessarily only protecting the institution, but, you know, fear of, I guess, any sort of, you know, uh, I guess, retaliation by by that individual. Um, and um, and I'm not sure if, if you had a sense of that uh, when watching that, but I think that's, I, I sort of took that away. I couldn't really talk to about how, how it was before and how it is now, but just based upon my observations from the testimony, that's what I took away from Also, it. the cues were very powerful. Assemblyman Vito Lopez, he was like a party boss. He was very influential. And so for rank and file members to stand up to him, that would have been really exceptional. Um, it's, you know, exactly. there's, there's sort of a power structure in the assembly, you know, assembly speaker Shelley Silver was sort of running the show and nobody would call him out. Even Democrats had, you know, wouldn't hold, call him out. So even, even, you know, colleagues that mm -hmm. obviously were not sexually harassed, but maybe heard about this would be reluctant to go after someone, uh, an elected leader that was powerful. And so that you can imagine how a staffer who has who has no power, how they would feel to have to try to raise this. It's virtually impossible mm -hmm. for them to uh, be able to raise an issue, especially someone who's starting out, wants to perhaps have a career in public service or the legislature. Now they have this black mark against them uh, th through no fault of their own. And so you can see how this is just kind of naturally swept under the carpet and without regard for the individuals that are, are impacted. And this would happen, like, like we said, this is the first time in 30 years we've even had a hearing on it. So the, the people that were in, in a position of power, um, there was no uh, accountability to them for anything that they did. And Dave, I do want to point out that, you know, one of one of the women that that um, from this group that testified and I can't recall her name, 
she did speak up and she said that she was a supervisor and she really tried in multiple ways in order to help one of the women um, who was a victim. And, and her every turn, you know, she was blocked. Um, she tried to, you know, uh, I think file a complaint and they said, well, you can't file the complaint because you're not the individual. Um, and she said, well, I'm, I'm her, you know, boss or I'm, I'm her supervisor. And, um, and she was blocked in all sorts of ways. So it, so there were people, and I, I don't think that's necessarily fair to say that other people didn't speak up for, for, for some of these victims. They, there were definitely people who were trying, but they were blocked. Are we seeing now that the dynamic has changed, that the culture is now starting to change? I know we have a new uh, Democratic majority in the Senate. Andrea Stewart-Cousins is now the majority leader. Has that uh, helped to open up the process? Absolutely. And the Senate also uh, had some 25% turnover. So there's a lot of younger, more progressive, um, incoming lawmakers who um, want are, are sort of shifting the conversation a little bit. Um, and Andrea Stewart-Cousins in general is, is tends to be, as is Carl Hasty, much more inclusive and democratic than their predecessors were. So they do want to um, give more voice to rank and file and, and have their input. Um, and, uh, you know, I, some of, I think at the hearing it was very interesting that just the, the conversations that were being had about, inter, you know, LG, you know, non-binary people or, or LGBT couples um, and how they're or, or people who, um, who, you know, just the conversations were, were more focused on, um, you know, we heard a lot of terms that used to be sort of foreign to the legislature, which is kind of an old school institution. And and um and I think it also it's important to point out that some of these some of these lawmakers they themselves said um, in their introductions that they also um, had experienced some sort of um, harassment or abuse um, and so I think that was also driving the conversation as well. I was very struck by the fact, um, Dave, that uh, I sat there for eleven hours and throughout that eleven hours it was a very it was, it was, these were very engaged lawmakers. They were really asking a lot of questions and I did not feel that in any way that this was grandstanding. I felt that there were this, there was a genuine interest and a very, a genuine interest to get, um, to, to get to a point to really understand what could they do? Um, what can they do to drive, um, some change moving forward? Well, and let's talk about that because there's really it's really a two pronged uh, effort here. Because one effort is to look at the sexual harassment laws in the state and see how that they how they can be improved, uh, and the other is to look at the legislature itself and how that process can be uh, made uh, better for those that are working for the legislature. And it seems as though, I mean, obviously sexual harassment is not something that's unique to the legislature or to government, but it seems as though in the way the current laws are written, there's a little bit of a carve out as to how the legislature treats these issues. So when we have human rights uh, laws that uh, impact employers, uh, the legislature has decided, well, if you work for the legislature, you might not necessarily be considered an employee, an employer, so you're kind of carved out of that relationship. What are the, some of the things that we're, we're, are, we're seeing can be done in the legislature to make uh, this process something that's more palatable for someone that, that works there? 
think, uh, you know, reforming Jacob was something that came up during the hearing. Um, and since it's the investigative body, I think, you know, one thing that came up is they were asking victims about their sexual histories. And that was something that, um, you know, many of them were just sort of taken aback by. Um, also, I, I think just, you know, as lawmakers and being in public office, you know, the, the public holds them accountable. Um, and there have been efforts over they have th this has been sort of a gradual evolution. Their sexual harassment policies in the Senate and in the Assembly are not the same. They're completely different. Um, there's no consistency. Um, and, you know, I think 2014 was a big turning point for the Assembly. They uh, it was after the Vito Lopez scandal and it had turned and it had been revealed that Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver had um, paid several victims um, uh compensated them in exchange for uh, their silence. Um, and, you know, people were very, you know, taken aback that taxpayer funds were used um, to um, for these settlement agreements. Um, and so there, there, that spurred a lot of reform. Um, and then I think, you know, just having like, you know, the, the culture just evolved um, usually following a scandal. We have it sort of has evolved in this patchwork you know, ma manner and when that every time there's a scandal, that's what sort of spurs a new conversation and compels the assembly or Senate to sort of take action and try to tweak it. And we, you know, and I think you've hit on something because of these non-disclosure agreements. So you say every time there's a scandal, you know, we start kind of start over. And the problem is when there is a there is something that actually has occurred and there is a settlement. There's these non-disclosures, so we're not able to see what we saw. Um, at this hearing where everybody talks about this kind of culture and there it's just viewed in a vacuum because under the non-disclosure agreements in order to get the settlement you're not allowed to talk about it mm -hmm. and so uh, what that does is prevent people from getting together and talking about not just that inst instance but the the culture that's pervasive uh, throughout and so we you don't have that kind of full comprehensive view of it. It's uh, more of a addressing it on a case-by-case -case basis and trying to make it go away, um, which is something that I think now we're moving away from. Uh, Susan, you you spoke a little bit about the, some of the discrepancies in the laws. Uh, so, for example, New York City uh, might have stronger, tighter laws protecting against issues like this than we might have statewide. Um, what are some of the things that we can do statewide that might make uh, it a, a little bit uh, easier for uh, those that are aggrieved in instances like this? Yeah, sure. Um, I, in, in my testimony, I didn't really address these sorts of issues, but I think these are issues that um, were um, brought up um, during um, during the um, hearing. Um, first of all, I, I think that there's um, there's definitely a movement, I guess, and there was, I think, significant discussion concerning uh, federal and New York state law and how the conduct um, has to be severe or pervasive for there to be a finding of a hostile work environment uh, for sexual harassment. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that severe and pervasive standard. So mm -hmm. um, in order to meet the standard uh, uh, for this type of behavior, a complaint must show that the conduct is severe and pervasive. Mm -hmm. um, and and w that would mean that if it was, let's say, a, a one-time instance, 
might not necessarily be considered pervasive. And so a, a one-time instance can be terribly uh, egregious, um, but uh, if it was only once, it wouldn't come within that standard, um, which uh, could be a real problem for, for many individuals, especially when you're not able to have the transparency to see what else has been going on. So uh, tell us a little bit about that standard and how we might change that standard so that uh, uh, an egregious type of conduct could in fact be addressed. Sure. Um, I, I, there's definitely, I think, a, a movement towards uh, mirroring the New York City statutes um, and case law with respect to, you know, a standard. Um, and that is, you know, treating an individual less well uh, because of their class um, and then including that gender or perceived gender and amounts to more than petty or slight or trivial inconveniences. So um, I, what I heard and um, I guess and there were examples that were given. Um, especially by the woman who was, uh, who was testifying next to me, uh, Miriam Clark. Um, there were definitely these examples that were, that were, you know, that were given, uh, that took place in the different departments and cases in the different departments. And it was, I have to say, Dave, it was, David, it was pretty shocking for me to hear, um, uh, that some of these examples were not severe, um, or pervasive. So I think that uh, a movement towards, having a possible uh, standard that uh, mirrors more the New York City uh, human rights laws, it would be likely to be more protect, uh, protective of victims uh, than the current severe pervasive standard applicable under the New York State human rights law. Now, Rachel, you recently wrote an article for the Times Union about some uh, bills that have been introduced to fix the state human rights law to address some of these issues. What, what are some of the ways that uh, the bills that are being proposed uh, might address this issue? So the severe or pervasive standard is something the governor addressed in his executive budget, and I think there's a good chance that that will get passed, um, just getting, you know, mirroring New York City's human rights law. The other one is this defense that's used, and and, uh, Susan can pronounce it for me, um, which is, you know, it frequently allows employers to sort of be escape culpability when a manager or a supervisor sexually harasses an employee, but the employee is not comfortable reporting it themselves. So if they find out through some other means and they don't, you know, follow that sort of chain of commands, then they can use this defense where, well, you know, we didn't, we weren't told that, um, we weren't reported in the appropriate manner. Um, so that's another thing that, uh, lawmakers hope to close, um, and, you know, make that defense no longer an option for, for employers. Now, with respect to the, the changes in the law, would this apply to the legislature as well? Or is this just a statewide uh, type of change to human rights law? The legislature is going to have to reexamine its own sexual harassment um, policies because, it, like we said, they're not considered an employer. Um, they don't consider themselves an employer for the purposes of these laws. Correct. Right. Right. And they're the ones that make the laws and they kind of exempted themselves out of it. I think lawmakers are trying to find every sort of type of employment. They're trying to include contractors. They're trying to include um, part-time labor, um, farm workers, um, undocumented workers. Um, so I, hopefully they'll find some way to encompass the legislator too and hold them to a certain standard. There is a model sexual harassment policy that was released last year. And hopefully, um, you know, both houses will try to, you know, meet that standard. And I know there's additional training 
that they're providing to uh, people in the legislature about right. what's permissible and what's not permissible, et cetera. What about having an outside independent uh, investigator look at some of these claims? I know right now they go to Jacob and there's been some concern over the fact that there's been something like 43 investigations, but only three actual conclusions. Um isn't it possible for this to go to some sort of outside investigator that's not? Actually, uh, both houses have been have hired outside counsel and they spend, you can kind of see it in their reporting, like thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars on outside counsel to handle these type of investigations. Um, some of them quietly and, and we don't hear much about them. Uh, the, the problem with that is you know, the Assembly's policy, their outside counsel for a long time was CUNY Professor Merrick Rosane, who, you know, part of the process was to for him to do an investigation, show his findings to an ethics committee, and then that committee, which was, you know, for Republicans and for Democrats, would determine if the sexual harassment had occurred. Um, and there was a case, you know, just last year um, in which, you know, an Assemblyman um, you know, the, the the committee had sort of been split half and half, four and four, about whether right. the the uh, harassment had occurred, um, and so they had to they weren't able to conclude that it happened. But um, then a subsequent um, later, they determined that it had happened because he had been talking about the investigation and sort of retaliated, um, and so that sort of raised questions about this process whether an outside counsel outside counsel really helps if there's like if lawmakers are involved in determining whether or not their own colleague is is guilty of the act. Susan, any other uh, legal issues uh, or laws uh, that could be used to uh, help address this issue uh, that we can be looking for? Well, I, there's definitely a movement now to um, to amend the New York State Constitution to include a prohibition of discrimination based on sex or gender. Um, and I think that uh, well, if that, that would be broader, that would be broader than sexual harassment, though, right? That I mean, sex it would, but it would add strong, but it would add strong protections that relate to um, gender-based discrimination and sexual harassment. Um, and so I think that's that's that that's that's important. I guess just to to have in there, um, so that way folks are aware that um, that there's equal treatment regardless of sex and gender. Um, I. I I mean, all of these, all all of these, um, these issues that we're talking about right now, um, you know, are are still very much in the uh, discussion stage. Um, I do think that there's uh, there's definitely a movement towards uh, when we talked about uh, we talked about confidential uh, settlements. Um, one thing that um, that was brought up that if there is some sort of confidential settlement. Um, is that it doesn't restrict the victim's um, access to public benefits and rights. Um, that was one thing that I thought that was very interesting that uh, the working group brought up about the fact that uh, they were blocked, I guess, from potential, I guess, getting any sort of unemployment benefits. And you can imagine if you're in a situation like this, uh, whereby um, you are, you're not um, being supported through the process, and whereby you have negative press and it's hard to get a job, you will likely need access to some sort of benefits. Um, the other one is having a, uh, a pass a sunshine and litigation law. Uh, this was another one of their recommendations that I thought was very interesting, and that bars the enforcement of confidential clauses and settlements if they conceal information related to public hazards. Um, so that way, I guess uh, those uh, individuals can also speak out um, if, if they're if this, if I guess if a person, I guess there's another situation that it may impact 
the public. Well, uh, this is obviously a very serious and important issue. Uh, we thank you, Susan, for your leadership uh, with the Women in Law section uh, on, on these issues. And Rachel, we thank you for your coverage on behalf of the Times Union of these issues uh, over uh, a long period of time. So thank you both for being here. We have a more lighthearted feature on Miranda Warning's uh, music book or movie. Uh, Rachel, do you have a music book or movie that you'd like to share with us? I recently watched the entire series of Show Me a Hero. I like to watch and read things that are tangentially related to things that I'm working on. Um, and I was profiling Audrey Stewart Cousins, and I, you know, I've never been to the, I've been to the Bronx, but I haven't been to Yonkers or even Westchester. So I really wanted to understand sort of the political climate that she came up in in politics. Um, so it was really interesting, um, and I was, I found that uh, series very uh, intriguing and compelling. And Show Me a Hero. Is David the, Simon, who uh, created this series based on sort of the housing crisis of the 80s and 90s in Yonkers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very interesting just in terms of, you know, it, it's rare that you see sort of de facto segregation sort of addressed in that way and, and sort of how it played out in the public stage. And um, it was just really dramatic um, for over, what, 200 units or something. Um, so it was, it really sort of provided like a backdrop to the type of person that Andre Steer Cousins was. So I, I found it really fascinating. Great. Uh, that sounds uh, like a good one. Show me a hero. Uh, Susan Harper, anything you want to share? <laughs> sure. Um, just quickly, uh, I, since I'm a, a repeat visitor, I did speak, I did speak last time about just uh, Broadway shows. I do want to just, um, I, because of the fact I was, it was mentioned that I could also mention some, something else. I do want to just uh, give a shout out uh, at this moment. Just for um, just for the uh, New York State Bar as well as just bar associations, just in general, um, I really think that after um, ex after having this experience of testifying and listening to this, and just even this follow up here, um, just the importance of, of our role um, in uh, in society and, and just bringing forth and uh, these issues and actively participating in, in making change. Um, so that's mine for today. Thanks. The National Employment Lawyers Association had a hand in drafting some of the legislation that's coming out. They've sort of stood by these women since last year, and, and they've really helped narrow down, like, where the gaps are in, in New York State law. Right. Well, thank God for lawyers. <laughs> so, thank, thank you. And reporters as well. Thank you both. Uh, thank you. Rachel and Susan, thank you very much for being on Miranda Warnings. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't. <laughs>